Good morning. Good to see here, see you, and good to be here. As uh, Josh mentioned, my name's Ernie. I serve as an elder uh, at the Bayview campus uh, at Mercy Hill Church. My family and I are here today. Uh, Kevin asked that I share a little bit about myself, so I'll just quickly uh, share. Uh, we've both my wife and I have grown up here in the southeastern area of Wisconsin. Uh, moved to the Milwaukee area about. I don't know, 16 years ago maybe now, and uh, I've been attending Mercy Hill ever since. Um, the first time I attended Mercy Hill, actually, Kevin uh, is the one who greeted me at the door. Uh, so it's pretty cool to just all these years later, um, you know, be still involved and be a part of Mercy Hill Church from that little condo where only a few families were meeting to uh, kind of what we're seeing, the fruit of, of God's work today. Uh, it's really an honor and privilege to be here with you today, and uh, I know that uh, Kevin uh, wishes he'd be here, but uh, he'll be back soon, and we continue in the series, The Word, this morning. Um, so as the reading uh, mentioned, we were in chapter 14, reflecting and kind of moving, Pastor Kevin has been moving through uh, the book of John for the better part of the last year, maybe, I, I think we're in week 40-something, uh, if anyone wants to keep some count there. Uh, so a lot of ground has been covered, and um, we continue today in chapter 14 as our reading uh, went through. In the middle of 14, we pick up. Uh, I'd like us to unpack a handful of verses uh, from our passage this morning, and we'll start with the very first verse. We'll start here as our starting point for this morning and kind of go into uh, how the remaining verses support uh, this beginning verse that we're going to look at in our passage. passage. So John 14, uh, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to congregate, to gather, to be together, and to open your word. Allow it to speak to our hearts and our minds. Let our spirits be moved, Lord, by your words. Your Holy Spirit be present uh, and ever moving in our lives, our hearts. Lord, I pray that the time we have together be blessed and that you speak to each and every person here this morning. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, now I have a question. How many of us have maybe sat around a dinner table? And maybe there's kids present. Maybe they're your kids. Maybe they're someone else's kids. But all of a sudden, the conversation's, you know, going. And maybe they're talking about an upcoming special event. Maybe it's a birthday. Maybe it's Christmas. And the kid is asking for something uh, for this special occasion as a gift. And all of a sudden, you hear it, you know, kind of the phrase in the way that we probably have all heard or maybe even phrased it ourselves. But dad... But mom, if you really loved me, you would get this for me, right? Or maybe it's you as an adult to your spouse <laughs> um, saying that. Um, you know, it, it could be something, you know, again, like we asking that. And what oftentimes we find in these particular scenarios or situations, um, what oftentimes ends up being unfortunate is about the posture is oftentimes that the child is already going to get the thing that they're asking for or some variation of it. 
um, the parent, let's say in this example, the parent isn't going to give the gift so that the parent can love the child more, right? Like that just doesn't make sense. I mean, imagine saying, son, I am going to buy you this so that I can love you. Or I'm going to buy you this so that I can love you more. Or I'm going to get you this or do this for you because if I don't, I don't know that I can love you more. Like that logic just doesn't make too much sense. Many of us who are parents um, often do something or give something to our children as a result of simply loving them. The outcome of loving the child first is the giving of the gift. Second, you guys follow? Often as Christians, oftentimes as Christians, we forget this very principle. The principle that we are to love Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit first. We are to ask, we are to seek him, we are to yearn for him, we are to long for him. We are to give our attention to him. And as a result, what follows is the following and keeping of his commandments. Often what happens is we worry too much about following commandments first. Thinking that this is, this is the way when it isn't. Or we get caught up in the activities of being Christians because we feel obligated rather than motivated out of the love for Christ and his church. Or we become preoccupied in the rules or laws of being a Christian to keep up appearances rather than what we do being out of a genuine outflow of our love for Christ. This type of thinking or this posture has led oftentimes to things such as legalism. In fact, Jesus doesn't add any specification here when he says these words in verse 14. I'm sorry, 15. He doesn't say, if you love me, you will keep my morals. He doesn't say, if you love me, you will keep these rules. What he says is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, in context of our passage this morning, we are reading in the book of John. And if we look at the word commandments in the context of John, we can look at something very peculiar here. The commandments you see are more like the following throughout the book of John. So I'm just going to go through a quick list here. John 1.12, he says, receive me. John 1.43, he says, follow me. John 11.43, he commands Lazarus and he says, rise from the dead, Lazarus. John 12.36, he commands, believe in the light. John 14.1, he says, believe in God. 
John 15, 4, he commands, abide in me. John 15, 7, he commands, ask whatever you wish. John 15, 9, he commands, abide in my love. And at the end, towards the end of John, he commands, receive the Holy Spirit. To surmise this, Jesus is commanding what? When we look at these commandments he is giving, if we were to summarize this, what is Jesus commanding? He's commanding that we receive him. He's commanding that we follow him. He's commanding that we believe him. He's commanding that we ask him. All throughout the book of John, often we take the word commandments here and understand it to be things that would be considered frivolous. In fact, while Jesus was on earth, we have a group of religious uh, leaders at that time known as the Sadducees. And they are asking Jesus about something that, to be quite honest, is probably super frivolous at best. In Matthew chapter 22, they were asking Jesus about whose wife a woman would be after the resurrection. So the law, based on the Torah, known as the Yibum, required a brother to marry his brother's wife should that brother pass away and his wife left be, uh, be a widow and childless. So in the Torah, there was this law where that, that brother would have to marry that, that woman. And so here we have the Sadducees are, are, are kind of looking at this law and, and are giving a specific example. Like, well, we have this family with seven brothers. None of them are married except the one. So if his wife should die, the one brother would take her. What if he dies? And then the other brother takes her. What if he dies and so on and so forth? They come to Jesus and they ask, so whose wife would she be in the resurrection? I mean, imagine asking this. Imagine this question. Imagine this line of thinking that these men had. Men. <laughs> Am I right? Matthew 22. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what's said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then the crowd heard it. They were astonished in his teaching. So now the Pharisees, they hear, wow, like, Jesus really gave it to the Sadducees, right? Like, wow, he, like, shut them up. Now, you have to understand something. These two groups, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, might as well have been, like, I don't know, the right and the left in Congress or something. Like, they just do not get along. There is literally an aisle dividing them. There is some division between them and how they interpret the Scripture. One group wants to interpret it literally as the word it says. The other group more orally. As they give the word, they, they work through the interpretation that they never, they always butt heads. So now the Pharisees heard like Jesus just, just gave them 
gave it to them, gave it to the Sadducees, like put them in their place. So a lawyer that is part of the Pharisees goes to Jesus and says, well, we might as well go like check before we get embarrassed, right? Like we might, we might get embarrassed too or, or get told or put in our place. So let's just go triple check with Jesus and they go ask him. It says Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, so which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your brother as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I want us to zoom in. We've all heard this many, many times, especially if you've been a Christian for any number of years. You've, you've heard these commandments. Even in, in our secular society, we take this on as treat your brother, treat your neighbor as you would treat yourself. Like that's, that's a principle that many have taken on, regardless if they are Christian or not. I want us to zoom in, though, on the first thing here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus' instruction here, in the context of this debate that is going on over the law, whatever you may have or understand or how the law transforms, what Jesus' instruction here is, is here is none of this matters if this isn't your starting point. In fact, we see Jesus repeat this three more times after verse 15. He says in John 14, 21 in our passage this morning, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, is, it, is, he it is who loves me. And then in 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then the next verse, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Notice that the commandments or the works here are working are in conjunction with loving Jesus. That's the association in our passage, like Jesus says this, four different ways, saying the same thing. So this is something we need to pay attention to in our passage this morning. One can most definitely keep his words. One can most definitely follow the morals or the law or the rules or whatever you want to put it, whatever word you want to use there. But that usually doesn't last long if we don't truly love Jesus. In fact, Jesus gives a very stark warning in Matthew 7 when he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. A key driver to think about here today is that Jesus loved us to the fullest extent in spite of who we are. Amen? But we aren't to love Jesus in spite of who he is. No. We are to love Jesus because of who he is. And that should drive us. That should motivate us. Uh... What was the lyric in the song this morning that we sang? I'm overwhelmed by you. 
Jesus, I love you. I'm terrible at lyrics, so I probably butchered that lyric, but you guys remember that, right? <laughs> like, are we overwhelmed? Are we overwhelmed by him? I love how a pastor surmises this scripture, this passage, and he says, loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Jesus says doing excellent things, keeping my word, is the result of delighting in an excellent Savior. This is the first thing to take away from our morning's passage, this morning's passage. We must love Jesus first and fully. This leads us to understanding and grasping the full power of the promise that Jesus gives in the next verse. Now, for some context here, Jesus has been teaching his disciples for around three years to this point of when we're up at this passage. He and his disciples, to say the least, have been through quite a lot up until this very dinner that is happening here in the upper room. Even right up to this point in the scriptures, Jesus knows that someone that he is close to him is going to betray him. Even foretelling that someone else is going to deny him later. So again, you could kind of feel like they've been through a lot, but at this point, it is a pretty intense dinner. And Jesus is not only telling them this, but he's also saying, oh, and by the way, I am returning to the Father. I am leaving you. You could argue the air was thick with anticipation and angst in that room. And the disciples, on top of this, are facing a lot of external heaviness from the government. Now, the book of John, we see, is written with the intention of showing, of revealing who Jesus is, showing us his nature and work so that we may know him. Showing how Christ is deeply moved by our humanity, how he's brokenhearted, knowing that ultimately he would sacrifice himself to the point of death and death on a cross to the fullest extent. So in this very important dinner, Jesus tells his disciples something, arguably, arguably one of the most important promises of the 7,000 plus promises we see throughout all of scripture, he gives his disciples. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He promises not only another helper, but that that helper would be around forever. Because the disciples at this very point are facing a timeline. There is an end to when Jesus is with them. But the promise here is, I will send another helper, and he will not leave you. 
when reading this promise in verse 16, we typically can associate two concepts when we talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit or two understandings. The first is that the helper, uh, we take it at first, uh, I'm sorry, the first understanding or concept is that we take this at face value. The helper will not leave us as orphans. We see that in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now you can imagine when Jesus says these words, you got to think of the heaviness that the disciples have with the external forces that are at work between the government and and them being persecuted and, and saying this is what you are following, the gospel you are preaching is not right. But Jesus is telling them, I am not going to leave you as orphans. This is a heavy promise. Verse 21, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. As a result of this, we have gifts of the Spirit. We see this in 1 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, I think I I covered a little bit on this the last time I visited. In Galatians 5.22, we see there are fruits of the Spirit. So, the promise of the Holy Spirit here is that we have a helper, that the helper's with us forever, and there are gifts that the helper will give us to fulfill the work of Christ, as well as fruits of the Spirit. All this to say is that we have the spoken and we have the written promise, and we also have a way to measure it through the gifts, through the fruits. That's the first understanding of this promise. The second, we may associate the Holy Spirit with what maybe takes place on the day of Pentecost, which, I don't know if you all know this, but coincidentally is observed today. We see this in Acts. I'm going to read quite a bit of a passage here. I know a lot of us may be familiar with it. but Bear with me as we work through this. Acts 2.11 through 18. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I guess it wasn't popular to get drunk in the third hour of the day, but But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This... This is when we get into murky waters as a modern church. I mean, let's be real, like even then, there was some murkiness. We may have a bad connotation with these types of activities described in Acts. 
Maybe we've seen one too many depictions in our culture of snake handling services, declaring they have the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, like this really didn't happen all that much if you look at history, but it did in the 20th century throughout the Appalachian region in the East. So I can understand us being a little leery or suspect of activities that may resemble something that looked like Acts 2 because of what our culture maybe has distorted. And we may argue these people are just filled with new wine. But despite this misconception, both of these concepts are very much true in that we have a helper who gives us gifts. We have a helper who gives us fruits for the edification of the body of Christ. We have a helper who has manifested in our lives here on earth and for as comfortable or as uncomfortable we are with what takes place in Acts. The Spirit is poured out on all flesh and, the, and they will prophesy. Visions will take place. Dreams will happen. The power of this promise as as much in the words itself here as it is in the results. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that this promise is real today. That the Holy Spirit is a revelation of God working through his children. And only those that love Jesus can receive the helper of all helpers. John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. If we love Jesus, we receive the spirit. We receive the helper. But we must be careful to not stifle the Holy Spirit in our lives. This includes as much as it is today on a Sunday as it is on a Monday or a Thursday or any other day of the week. We must lean in to the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 6-7, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us the Spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. First uh, Thessalonians says, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame. Oh, I copied and pasted the same thing in here twice. Anyone have First Thessalonians 5.19 and 21? Or did you get it? Do not. Thank you. All right. AV guys got my back. But do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Amen? The power of the Holy Spirit is only as as powerful as we love Jesus and desire for the Helper to be with us. We have to surrender to the Father and allow room for the Holy Spirit to move in us and through us. But for many, for many Christians, this is unfortunately where we stop. We stop 
we acknowledge God the Creator, God the Father. We acknowledge Jesus, the Son, the Redeemer, who died for our sins. But often, we don't acknowledge to the fullest extent the Holy Spirit. We must allow the Holy Spirit to be the helper, to be the comforter, to be the advocator, the counselor, the intercessor, the strengthener that the Bible tells us he is. Too often, we miss out on this promise. I've done it. Almost daily, I need to remind myself of the struggle that it is to lean in my own strength, to fulfill my own will, to fulfill my own desire. I quench the spirit. I miss out on it. Despite the promise taking place right in front of me, I see the things that are happening around me. The way the Holy Spirit is working. And oftentimes I still, I still may be quenching the Spirit. As a pastor recently shared this quote by A.W. Tozer, the idea of the Holy Spirit to the average church member is so vague and to be non-existent. The idea of thinking we have the Holy Spirit by buying into the snake handling type of stuff is as much as it is dangerous as that is to not acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit. To not lean in and allow it to fill us and have this promise fulfilled in our lives. I want our prayer today, tomorrow, always, as a church, that it be, do not allow us to quench the Spirit. That we pursue to see this promise fulfilled in our lives. So we are to love Christ first. Out of that, the result is we follow the commandments. To receive Him, believe in Him, to ask Him, to follow Him. We are to acknowledge the power of this promise in our lives, of the Holy Spirit, and the power that it has to edify the body, to build up the church. But the promise goes just a bit more beyond that than just having the helper. When we love God, when we receive the helper, there is unity with the triune God. So when we love Jesus, when we receive the helper, we also find unity with a triune God. It's easy to gloss over this, but the, this is really the pinnacle of our fellowship with uh, the Father today. Verse 17. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There is unity within us. 19. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. There is life in unity with him. 20. 
You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There is unity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. The manifestation of the Spirit is in us, and the trifecta here of being loved by the Father, by Jesus, and having the Holy Spirit manifested in you. And lastly, verse 23, and he will come to him and make our home with him. We have access to a dwelling place. If you look at the cliff notes at the very high level of the dwelling place of our Father throughout Scripture, it is very limited from the Old Testament to this very promise. The floodgates are opened. And the helper is with each and every one of you. Do we understand that? Do we appreciate that? Do we fully grasp that? Are we overwhelmed by that? When our foundation is the greatest commandment, we're allowed to have access and unity with the Father. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So when we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love. And check this out. And when whoever abides in love, abides in God. And God abides in him. As I mentioned briefly, today is the day we observe Pentecost Sunday. What took place in the fulfilling of that promise come to life in Acts 2. Now, I don't know if this was just like perfect planning by the teaching staff or, or what it was. Or the Holy Spirit. But the fact that we're covering this promise exactly seven days from Easter Sunday on Pentecost Sunday should really make us stop in our tracks and grasp what this promise means to you. What this promise means to Mercy Hill, what this promise means for your family. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your view is of the Holy Spirit, what your understanding of this promise is. I don't know if you've had bad experiences with the gifts. What I do know is that this is a promise that starts with us loving the Father, loving His Son, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And this promise is there to empower you, to empower the church, to edify the church, to build up the church, and to testify of the power and divinity of God. But above all that, 
this promise is there so that we can have unity with a triune God. Think about that. This is why this promise can arguably be one of the most pivotal, one of the most important of the 7,000 plus promises we see in Scripture. As people, as followers of Christ, this promise is here today for you. This promise is here today for your family. This promise is here today for your church. And those who don't know Christ cannot see it. Those who do not love Christ cannot see it. So rather than going and looking to see it, look and go to say, Jesus, I love you and I surrender to you. Here is my life in full surrender to you. My thoughts, my heart, soul I lay it on the altar what I'm chasing the goals I have the projects that I have the things I want to accomplish come second let that be as it has been this past week for me as it has been these past 10 days of Terry as it has been just recently the conviction we have in our heart. Amen. Father, we pray today that you just allow us to see you and love you for who you are. Break us so that we may be aware of the power of this promise that you gave on that very day at that dinner table in the upper room. Jesus, allow us to lean in to your promise that we may have Unity with a triune God that we may have a dwelling within us of a triune God. I pray that this is our desire in our prayer this morning, Jesus.